I would invite you now to open your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 3 this morning. Titus 3 is uh, a gospel-rich passage, and if you ever need a place to go for a refreshment on the gospel, this is the place to go. This, this has so much packed in these verses that I'm going to read to you that it can become overwhelming, and I'm glad for us to have some tracks to run on and a way to navigate through all that's there, but it's deep. There's a lot of depth here. Titus chapter 3, listen as I read verses 1 and 2, just to get us started. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Stop there. These verses are evangelistic verses. They might seem on the surface to be just commands, ways to live the Christian life out in the culture, out in the world. But these verses are expressly meant to win people to the gospel. These are the verses that are the garments that you wear or adorn. Titus 2.10 speaks of adorning the doctrine of God or adorning the doctrine of our God and Savior. These are gospel clothes. That's verses 1 and 2. These kinds of attitudes are very uncommon. These kinds of actions are very uncommon. And it's very difficult to live. For instance, if you're like me, you wake up in the morning and your first waking thought perhaps is not the gospel. Your first waking thought is perhaps anything but the gospel. There's cares and concerns and obligations and things that you wish you would have done the day before that you still have to do today or the day after. These are the crowding, consuming worries that we are called to cast away. Instead of living according to that kind of treadmill life where you're trying to outperform what you can't ever get done, we're actually called to live a life like this, a life of humility and submission, a life of obedience to God and a life that is ready for sometimes to do a good work. No, ready for every good work, not in a performance way, but just this attentiveness to find out what God has for you today while you live a Christian mission. What's the adventure for today in the workplace? How are you supposed to serve your boss or how are you supposed to serve a coworker? How are you supposed to serve a subordinate? And to help them complete their mission. How are you supposed to serve your children? How are you supposed to pray with them? Work with them? Shepherd their hearts? This is the life of submission evangelism. And I think that's something of what the Lord has laid on my heart this summer. As I've been able to preach a few topical sermons from 1 Peter and then now from Titus 3. This kind of evangelistic lifestyle is what we're called to live, but not without gospel fuel to propel us 
in and through this life and to sustain this kind of life. But it takes real intentionality and real, really a re-gripping with gospel truth to live this way. It's not second-tier Christianity. This is Christianity. This is what it looks like to win people to Christ by the way that you live because people will ask you, how do you do it? And this morning, I want to, again, refresh us with how to live the Christian life, how to be motivated. It's found in the verses that follow, verses 3 through 8. Practically speaking, verses 3 through 8 should be verses that you tell yourself. The great um, pastor who was also trained as a medical doctor, the late D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his great book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, he says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You say, well, are we supposed to talk to ourselves and mutter around and look crazy? Well, if you have Bluetooth in, then you're already there, right? People wonder who you're talking to. But we should be talking to the Lord in our hearts and perhaps even out loud in our cars as we walk around all the time. But we should also be meditating on scripture and telling ourselves things because there's always a subtext narrative inside of you telling you something. And most often, it's something that we shouldn't be telling ourselves or shouldn't be trying to live out. Because our flesh is involved in a narrative that's just happening. Just like as you watch the news and there's that subtext that's running underneath all the time. That's something that's going on in the heart and in the mind all the time. And we have to correct that narrative with truth all the time by telling ourselves truth. That's why I read Psalm 42 earlier. In verse 3, the psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, Where's your God? Tears is a metaphor for that subtext conversation. It's crying, it's working through things, it's the sorrows and sadness of the heart that are running through your heart saying, where is God in this? And the psalmist is having to correct this in verse five. He says, why are you, he's talking to himself, why are you cast down, oh my soul? He's confronting himself. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Who's he telling that to? He's telling himself that. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. He describes in verse 7, these waterfalls, these breakers, these waves that are going over him. But he's remembering the Lord's steadfast love and that there's a song with him. Verse 9, he's saying, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go down mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Again, there's bad things that are happening in a fallen world. People are saying things against this psalmist. He says, verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He knows he doesn't feel like God is with him right now. He doesn't sense God's presence right now, but he knows God has not left him. For he says, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So an Old Testament saint was to do this, but all the more a New Testament believer because we have the gospel. We have the clarity of why and how God is with us. We know the answer. 
It's not through our performance. It's not through our obedience to the law. It's not through some kind of religious exercise that keeps us right with God. It is a bedrock gospel foundation that we stand on that's described in verses 3 through 8. In this passage, Paul is marrying up the demands of the gospel with the demands of the motivation of the gospel. The demands are verses 1 and 2. And then the motivation is verses 3 through 7. You remember last week, if you were here, and I'll just give you a little refresher. Paul had his man on the island of Crete. He loved Titus so much. He said, I'm going to put you on mission and leave you here. It was Paul's third missionary journey, I believe, where they encountered the island of Crete. And Titus was commanded in verse 10 of chapter 2 to call this church to adorn the doctrine of God, to decorate the gospel with a lifestyle, not with license plates or t-shirts or stickers or Jesus jewelry, but with, with a lifestyle. The most difficult mission is to live it out. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you on Crete, that you might put what remained in order to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was to be a church planner, but he was planting churches to live the gospel. What's the goal of church? Is it just to gather and congregate? No, it's to also scatter and adorn to live out the gospel. This is the fueling tank time. This is where you're to get charged up so that you want to go out tonight, tomorrow, by Wednesday, Thursday. Oh man, I need church again. Okay, it's Friday, Saturday. You refuel and then you go back out again and live the gospel. It's what we're called to do. And Titus was to be part of this movement. This is the book of Titus is a leadership letter. It's a letter on leadership. Titus was a key leader, and this is how to lead in the church. Paul called him a brother, a partner, a fellow worker. He mentioned him all through 2 Corinthians. Island of Crete was a rough place. It was 161 miles long and 7 to 30 miles in width, and it, it was cast as the birthplace of Zeus and but was called by a prophet, a Cretan poet and uh, sort of poetic prophet who said in Titus 1.12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Epimenides just, he didn't mince words. To Cretanize was to lie. It was a rough town. It was a wild west town. And it was a place where Titus was called to be faithful. How was he to do this? Well, there's the old adage that actions speak louder than words. And we've kind of looked at Verses 1 and 2, these are the actions of the gospel, but how do you live these gospel actions out? Well, here it is. You insist that the church be motivated by the gospel. Look at verse 8. I want to skip down real quick. This kind of wraps everything together. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What does that mean? Insist. Well, Paul is telling Titus that as a leader on the island of Crete, when you're church planning, when you're building these churches, when you're establishing leaders, that you need to bulo my, you need to insist, you need to assert your leadership will onto theirs and say, you need to live these Christian lifestyle attributes out 
but you need to do it with the motivation of the gospel. If you just submit in the flesh, you won't sustain it. Nobody's heart will change from that. But if there is a spiritual lifestyle evangelism at play, God's kingdom will advance. That's what's going on here. Insist on these things. What are the these things? Well, not just verses one and two. Insist on the gospel that fuels verses one and two. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Just to confidently assert these things. Look at verse 15 of chapter two. It says, declare these things. These are gospel truths. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Same language. It's a trustworthy statement. What is, what's the trustworthy statement of verse eight? It's looking back to verses three through seven. Anytime the word trustworthy statement is used in the pastoral epistles, it's talking about a gospel motivation. You can boil down verses three to seven in this motivation with the three words beginning in verse five. He saved us. Everything, if you were kind of mapping this out on a one piece of paper and wanting to boil everything down to three words, you would put in the middle of the paper, he saved us. And then you could draw lines to everything else that Paul is highlighting in verses three through seven. He saved us. Never forget one time I was, I was driving another driving analogy. This was back when I was in college and uh, it was super slick. And I was driving down I-95 from Virginia down to Orlando on a college uh, sort of getaway to Disney World. I was going down and this big tractor trailer was, was in front of us and and uh, suddenly it started to careen and go like this back and forth. And I had to sort of dodge it and go out to the left and get around. And, and, and then once the tractor trailer gained control, it, it had this giant, you know, Jesus saves on the back. And it sort of was like, yes, he does. He saved all of us and even you. Anyway, it was, uh, you know, everything comes down to that. Everything orbits around these gospel ideas and truths. There are six descriptions in verse three that I want to begin with. If you're taking notes, you can mark bullet point one as this is how bad you once were. This is it. These are six descriptions that we need to tell ourselves and remind ourselves regularly. This is who we once were. Verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. For we ourselves, Paul is including himself in this description list. So none of us are excluded. Even you who became a Christian as a little child, still in your DNA, you have these manifestations. This is what he saved us from all of us, we were foolish. This is something we need to understand. You say, I don't want to do that. Well, it's important not as a pity party to align yourself with these pre-salvation titles. 
but it's to really dig deep and understand how bad you once were so that then you can fully embrace how good God was to you. What did he save you from? A diamond looks really good if you just kind of hold it up like this, but anyone who's a diamond salesman always will pull out one of those black or dark blue velvet, you know, velvet things and lay it down and then put the diamond in the center of that so that the brilliance will really pop on the diamond. So the black velvet or felt that you put out on the, on the display table is our sin. This is what we're walking through here. We were once foolish. The word foolish means ignorant. It's not that every choice you ever made before you were a Christian was out of ignorance or utter foolishness. It just means that the taint of foolishness was on everything. All of our motives were soiled. Before we are saved, we really can't give God, our, give God glory through our works. In common grace, we've done some things, but not as a Christian. We were foolish. We lacked general discernment. It's amazing how brilliant people can be and not understand clear ideas and clear truth, right? Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Why do people stay foolish? They become foolish because they're born in sin, but people stay foolish because they want to sin. Do you ever understand that? Do you ever see that? People are born foolish because they're born in sin, but people stay foolish because they want sin in their lives. And their sin is this catch-22 that's feeding their foolishness. And they have to stay foolish to keep sinning. Because if the lights come on and you say, wait, there's a holy God that I'm sinning against, then sin becomes no fun anymore. You have to stay foolish to sort of nullify the guilt in your own heart and life, you have to stay dumb. First Timothy 1.13, Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, for I received, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly, same word, foolishly in unbelief. To be foolish means that you're not believing. When you believe, the lights turn on. I don't care what you're grade point averages, or your academic aptitude is, if you know the Lord, you become wise. You know who the creator is. You know who made everything. People who have all kinds of accolades and brilliance and degrees who do not understand who created everything, they are missing the foundation to life. They don't understand who holds all things together. They don't understand the dilemma that we're facing in terms of internal sin. All of these things become clear when you receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not fall into a pit? First Corinthians 2, a natural person doesn't receive, doesn't decomai, doesn't take to himself the things of the spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He's not even able to understand these things. Once you're a Christian, you have the mind of Christ. Listen, once you break through your foolishness and the lights turn on, people notice that. They see a difference. You as a believer see the kinds of people that you need to spend time with or the kinds of people you need to put some distance between you and them, right? Right? 
Before that, the discernment factor is not there. You don't see the pitfalls. You don't see the dangers. And your witness is not real. But once that foolishness is lifted, things change. Number two, disobedient, rebellious. Before Christ, we were all disobedient. What does that mean? That means to live outside of authority. It's the world's version of heaven. It's to, um, you know, live outside any lines of accountability. It's the idea of being a rebel without a cause. This is what's promoted in our media today as joy is to be off on your own. But really, you know better and the world even knows better when you are off on your own. A rebel without a cause, whether you're bucking the system or you feel like you've beat the system, if you're all alone, that's an empty place to be. Oftentimes to be dependent and interdependent within the family of God, trusting each other, not trying to get the mission done all on your own, but living within community, not trying to run off by yourself is joy filling. It's what builds up our Christian hearts and lives. Number three, led astray. This is uh, to be misled, to be deceived. It's to be just wandering around aimlessly. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Number four, dulo here is the idea of being a slave. It's you're you're living for the next thrill. And uh, there are people who are addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, addicted to adrenaline, addicted to... Um, the party scene, they're just in a, a lifestyle pattern where you feel like you need the next thing. And that's the idea here of being a slave to various pleasures that feeds right into description five, passing our days in malice and envy. The new American standard calls this spending your life. It's like you're spending your life down like money day to day and week to week living for the next thrill, hated by others and hating one another. Do you see that one? It's the world of hate. Before you're a Christian, you can grow a layer of callus on your heart and on your life where you're used to being mad at people. Being mad is a, is a knee-jerk mechanism. It's where you're just angry all the time and you live in anger and you live in hate and you're just that way. I remember before I became a Christian, I had been sort of a, you know, a normal kid and living my life in a Christian home and you know, I would laugh and I would cry, but when I became a teenager and I was living this lifestyle where I was spending my days and these kinds of passions and pleasures and malice and envy where you want things that you're not getting and, and you're just spending your life down that way, there was a layer of callus that, that formed on my heart where I stopped crying over anything. I just evaluated. I hadn't cried in a long time because I didn't care about anything but myself. And that's the callous of sin that goes onto our hearts. When you assess your life according to these characteristics, your former life, you become a lot softer as a Christian, don't you? As a Christian, it's easy to forget who we once were. But part of being motivated in the Christian life is remembering how bad you used to be. Remembering it, not reveling in it. These are just surface descriptions, but reminding ourselves, that's who I once was. That's where I was headed. Don't let the world candy coat the sinful life to say, oh, it's such a great life that I once had that I wish I still had some of. That's not true. That's a satanic lie. 
John Calvin, he's not really known as a pastor and expositor, but he really was. He said, those who have a zeal for God are indeed severe with sinners, but because they begin with themselves, he was commenting on these verses here, because they begin with themselves, their severity is always mixed with compassion. Compassion. Well, we've seen how bad we once were. Let's look at how good God was. That's point two. Remember how bad you once were. Now remember how good God was to you. Now we're focusing off ourselves and onto God. This again is him saving us. Look at verse four. But this is in contrast to verse three. It's a strong contrastive word, but or however, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Stop there. Goodness and loving kindness. What, what is that talking about? That's talking about, that's talking about when Jesus showed up. Now there's a historical reference here that we know that all of the old Testament was pointing to all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, all of the law, all of what the prophets were speaking to. The Proto-Euangelion, the first prophecy and prediction all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where there was going to be a serpent's head who, which was going to be crushed by the gospel son that would come. And ultimately, he did come. And at first advent, he came as a little baby, fully God and fully man. He appeared. He appeared. It's like if this curtain was dropped down and it's dark sort of velvety, um, curtain thing if it was down we were all anticipating the beginning of a play and the curtain is raised and at center stage you have the star of the play Jesus appeared he's here he's not only here historically but when you became a Christian he appeared to you in your heart right the lights came on the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Jesus is here And he's in your life and he's active. I don't know if you were with me in that last worship song, but my heart was just soaring. And it was soaring because, not just because of the music, not just because of the dynamics, not just because of the drum beat, not just because of all that was happening. It was what was happening in my heart with you. We're all singing together. He's here. He's here. He's in my life. No matter what's going on, I'm forgetting about my troubles for a moment and remembering that Jesus is here because he appeared to me. He appeared to our world and he appeared in our hearts. We embrace him in this way. This is the gospel. This is goodness and loving kindness appearing to us historically and practically. This is the same motivation, by the way, of Look at chapter two, verse 11, for the grace of God, same word has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it do? This appearance in our hearts, the salvation, verse 12, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. There's an appearance that happened historically and there's an appearance that will happen in the future. In a historical moment in the future, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a future return. All of this 
trains us to live the gospel. Verse 14, you have chapter two, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here it is again. How do you drum up zeal? Remember Jesus. Remember how bad you once were. List it out. Think about it. Tell yourself, that's who I was. It's where I was going. It's where it would have led me. This wasn't a good track. It was not a good path. But Jesus appeared. He showed up. Curtain was drawn and he grabbed me and saved me. And he's with me and I know him and he knows me. That's how you produce zeal in your heart. You're not producing it. The Holy Spirit is as you tell yourself these things, as you meditate on the truth. Well, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse five. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us, not by our own works, not by our own self-righteousness. We could never save ourselves. The old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We never earned our salvation. We didn't save ourselves or for by grace you saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. If we saved ourselves, we would have screwed it up a long time ago, right? If you save yourself, then you're responsible to keep yourself. And if you're trying to keep yourself, you're going to lose yourself. It's not going to work out. God saved us, saved us completely. If you're drowning, you don't drown and swim yourself to the side of the boat. No, Jesus throws a life, he throws himself out and, and grabs you as the life preserver and pulls you to safety. He's the one who saved you. When you, if you struggle believing in the sovereignty of God in salvation, just ask yourself, what are you doing when you pray for someone? You're not praying that someone will save themselves or themselves. You're praying that God will save them. That's how it works. How does he do it? It's further described here. According to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us according to mercy. So first, historically appeared. Second, it's by his merit, his righteousness. And then thirdly, it's by his heart. This is not mechanical salvation. This isn't something that's just like in some sort of computer record that you were going to be saved. No, this is God's compassion upon you. This is his mercy on you. When Jesus looked out at the masses and he, he, he wept over the masses and said, I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but Israel, you're straying away. God overrides the sin in our lives that we're born into. He overrides that foolishness where we're self-feeding our own foolishness to keep our own sin going. He overrides that. He stops it. He hits a pause on that. He intervenes and saves you because of his mercy. Out of his own heart, he saved us. Compassion. And then it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, regeneration means to simply be born again. 
Jesus telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And that conversation in John 3 is referencing Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, which was a promise made to Israel, but it was a promise about the future new covenant work that would happen in the heart. He said, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. That's a picture of salvation, being saved from the enemies, being brought into a protective land. But then he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and I, you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. It's the picture of a flood coming through and washing away all those stone monuments that were, that were satanic ways that people were worshiping in syncretism saying they're worshiping God, but they were also worshiping idols. Didn't start there. He goes to the heart level. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will, and a new spirit. I will put within you. I remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All of this is talking about the heart work that was to happen in the heart of an Israelite that would genuinely believe. Look, the cross retroactively was at work in the Old Testament saint's heart. Make no mistake about that. Anyone who's ever been saved was saved in God's mind before the foundation of the world because of Christ's death on the cross. It's a comprehensive death that retrofitted into the heart of the Israelite as they believed. And not only was there their stone idol broken down. The idols within their hearts were broken down. And that's what happens in a New Testament Christian's heart as well. Those idols are washed. Listen, when you get away from the gospel, guess what's happening? Little stones are stacking again, right? Those idols start back up. But we have the spirit of God again to take them down. We repent of that. We go back to the gospel and say, no, that's what I used to be. That's what I used to worship. Now I no longer worship that because he saved us. Not by my own works, not by anything I did, but by being regenerated, washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Verse six, again, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. It's old things pass away. Everything is new. The spirit here is described as being plunged into our hearts. We're renewed in the Holy spirit, verse five, and we're renewed through this person, the Holy spirit, whom he, the Holy spirit being poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. This is the Trinity at work, the father, the son, the Holy spirit, poured on us richly. It's the lavishness of grace. This wasn't a half regeneration. This wasn't a half baptism into the Holy Spirit. This wasn't a half renewal. This wasn't a dimmer switch of the lights being turned on a little bit. This is all Jesus, all transformation, all washing, all renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's complete heart transplant, heart of stone out, soft heart of the Holy Spirit regenerated new heart in. It's through the agency of Jesus Christ, all who are led by the Spirit of God are called the sons of God, Romans 8, 14. So we're all of this inside and we're also covered by a 
righteousness that comes from the outside. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. What does that mean? Justified. Something that happened in the past. It's legal, declarative language. Justification is what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. He pushed hard against what the Roman Catholic Church was espousing at that time, that you were justified um, by this sort of dual effort, both in terms of what you were doing and both in terms of what the church was giving you because of what you were doing. You were saved, you were justified, but to stay justified, you had to continue to do religious rites to keep yourself in good standing. Martin Luther said, no, the righteousness of Christ is an alien righteousness. It's outside of us that comes onto us and clothes us completely. It's like this jacket just being put on or a robe being put onto us. It's nothing that we did. It's nothing that we're drumming up inside of ourselves to keep us in good status with God. I think that one of the reasons why we go joyless or run dry in the Christian life is we don't fully understand how powerful the shed blood of Christ is on our behalf. We don't understand that. We forget that we couldn't save ourselves. We were dead. Now we're made alive and we are justified by faith. We're made alive. So we go, I believe. And Jesus says, I declare you are righteous. Standing before the judge, you're in shackles. Need to go to the execution chamber. The judge looks down, says, yes, you are guilty because of your sins. But because of my son, I'm going to just take those shackles off and put it onto my son and have you go free. And I'm going to declare you not guilty, but I'm also going to declare you fully righteous as righteous as my son. That's justification. That's the great exchange. That's the gospel. It's not our works done in righteousness. It's that we were justified by his grace. Grace is unmerited favor, ill-deserved favor. It's grace that he's given to us by the Lamb of God. It's grace. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist tried to say, no, 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 not worthy to do that. I'm not worthy to untie your shoe. I need to be baptized by you, Matthew 3, 14. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, all justification. What does that mean? Jesus not only was born sinless, but he was proven sinless with an active obedience where he fulfilled everything and never transgressed anything. And that's the righteousness that's poured into your spiritual bank account, a bank account that is eternity filled all the way, all through heaven. What do we gain from this? We gain sonship. Look at this. Justified by his grace, we might become heirs. We're children of God. According to the hope of eternal life, we're heirs. We're co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. We're heirs with Christ, Galatians 3, 29. We're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, Ephesians 3, 6, heirs. We're members of the same body, 1 Peter 3, 7. Women as weaker vessel are heirs with a husband and the grace of life. 
We're heirs. And we are, we're heirs to a hope. Hope here is not a divine wish. This is not, I hope it'll all work out in the end. Hope is a guarantee. Hope is faith in a promise that is secure. That's hope. It's unwavering. It's as if we're already in heaven. We're already seated at the right hand of the Father in the mind of God because we have this signed, sealed, and delivered hope. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are heirs with Christ. We know it. We know it. And hopefully the Spirit of God is striking you in your hearts right now to say, I know, I know, I know I'm a Christian. Because when you're there, then you can live verses 1 and 2. And you say, well, where's the fire in living verses 1 and 2? Life is pretty mundane. It's pretty regular. You got to hit it hard on Sunday with the truth. I hit it hard every day with these truths. And it fuels the normal Christian life where you marathon run and you live a submissive life, a humble life, and people become Christians because they see the doctrine of God adorned in your life. How serious was Paul to Titus about these things? Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. What saying? Verse, verses 3 through 7, this gospel saying, how bad you once were, how good God was to you. And I want you to insist on these things. What is that? What are the, these things? Verses one and two, how to live the Christian life and insist on the gospel in your life. Again, bulomai. It's, it's assert your will on these things to your people. And I would say to your own heart, you have to override the subtext with the gospel and live it out aggressively. It's the law of Christ. It's a force of declaration here. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's a carefulness. It's not, it's not just, again, shouting from the rooftops or doing some social media blast about your faith. I mean, I understand these bold moments, but it's living the Christian life in humility in a genuine way where people see it and take notice. You have to insist on it in your heart. Insist on the gospel in your heart to live this plodding Christian life.